0: G'day, mate. Welcome to episode 52 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In today's episode, we're doing things a little bit differently. For the first time, Nick and I are on a Skype call together, and there's also video of the call over on YouTube if you want to get over and check that out. In today's episode, we are talking about training for a sport, which is affected by the weather. Next, gonna dig into more about hydration and sodium loading, and then we're gonna introduce to you the Harden Up Project.
1: Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach, Matty Graham, to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance, no matter who you are. Alright, g'day
0: mate. Welcome to episode 52 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. It is so good to have you here. What's been going on this week? Now in this episode we're going to be doing things a little bit different. Uh, Instead of Nick and I recording our individual segments uh, separately and then putting them together, we are together live on Skype. Uh, And there's also going to be some video for today's episode as well. Not very interesting videos, just of our ugly mugs uh, on the Skype call as we talk. Nick, how you doing,
2: mate? I am good, thank you. Good.
0: Yourself? Yeah, very good, mate. I'm pretty pumped with the new direction the podcast is hopefully taking. And let us know how you find the new format. If it's good, if it's not, comments, criticisms, otherwise. But let's crack into it. And we'll start off with Nick giving us a bit of a rundown on his training.
2: Well, if you remember back to last week's episode, I mentioned I was having a recovery week last week. Uh, That was due to being on the road quite a bit for my work and also having a family wedding on the weekend. So it was a a low-key week for me, which is good. Um, I've kind of come into this week ready to go. Uh, We are Monday night as we are recording this, and I've had two sessions already, so fizzing for the week. Um, And I've also just dropped a race into my schedule in a couple of weeks that I got permission to do. Uh, So I'm going to be lining up at the Mototapu mountain bike race for the first time. Um, So that will be interesting to see how I go.
0: Nice. So you've never done the Mototapu
2: at all? Never done the Mototapu, no.
0: Nice. Oh mate, you're in for a treat. It's a great ride that. Uh, Deceptively hard as well. Like the, you kind of think it's not, well it doesn't look that far on paper. but there's some there's some wood climbs in there and then the river crossings at the end. That's where it always gets you. I wouldn't be surprised if you get a bit of cramp. Uh, if I was a betting man, which I am, uh, I'm going to put some money on that you get some cramp running across the river crossings at the end.
2: Okay. Well, given, given we're talking a lot about hydration and how to prevent cramp at the moment, <laughs> one would hope not. But I, I'll take you on on that bet.
0: We'll see, we'll see. Uh, and you've done two sessions already this week, uh, it being Monday. What were those two sessions out of interest? Uh,
2: this morning I jumped on the trainer. Um, so I've got a love-hate relationship with my wind trainer, as most cyclists tend to. Um, the loving component is it enables me to train with power, which I don't have outside. So I get this really interesting kind of um, geeky, I guess, sessions going on when I'm on the trainer. So a couple of <clears throat> sort of threshold interval sessions on that this morning. And then this evening I had a, a small window to get something in um, and I did five times two minutes max efforts with a minute in between um, and then a, a half hour kind of spin on the back of that. So it was good good to blast it out um, and sort of prime up the legs for some longer rides throughout the week.
0: Nice one, solid. Uh, while we're talking about training plans, it's probably good part to talk about if that if you are looking for a quality structured training plan to take the thinking out of your training uh, but you don't want the price tag that the personalized training programs that Nick and I offer then check out the training plans that we have available over at ExponentialPerformanceCoaching.com slash plans. Over there, there's a range of training plans designed for specific races, uh, as well as general planning training plans for different training phases. If you can't find what you're looking for, then send us a message and we will do our best to see what we can come up with for you. Let's jump in to listen to Q&A today. We've got a question from James.
1: Hey Maddie, um, my name's James and I'm speak, you're writing this message from Perth in Western Australia. I um, just wanted to say I really like the Whiteboard Wednesdays. Um, it's awesome, so keep up the great work. I've got two questions. Um, so my background is in windsurfing. I'm a semi-professional windsurfer, interested in improving um, my endurance like, for, from CrossFit. Uh, my question is how do I manage An exercise plan when my sport is dependent on external factors Um, so you know some weeks it's just full-on windy and um, training every day on the water and then some weeks there's no wind at all Um, and I find it difficult to juggle both of those basically just juggle my training based on the the wind and the second one um, was to do with heart rate monitors so you have some really good whiteboard Wednesdays on heart rate monitors. Um, but my sport is not really a typical endurance sport, um, but I'm an engineer as well, and so I'm really interested in the data. Um, I was just wondering what are the metrics that I should be using with my heart rate monitor um, to complement my training, what I'm trying to achieve. Awesome. Thanks, Matty. But
0: Awesome. Hey, thanks f- a million for your question, James. Just remember, if you want to help shape the future of this podcast and send in a question or uh, suggest a topic that you want Nick or I to talk about, make sure you send in your questions over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash ask, A-S-K, as in ask a question. You can record your voice question over there. If you're not too keen on having your voice on the podcast, then send us a message in either via email or over on Facebook. So, windsurfing. Now I'm going to be pretty upfront, I have no idea about much about windsurfing at all, I think I've tried windsurfing once and it ended horribly, but from your question, it seems that it draws a lot of parallels with another sport that I work in, which is our, our Winter Olympic Snow Sport Programme, which combines uh, the park and pipe skiers and snowboarders, the big air, and also our alpine Racing without para-alpine guys. Now, they have a lot of reliance on weather as well, and they have a lot of weather days where they're not able to train on the mountain, whether it be whiteout, whether it be too much wind, whether the snow condition, whatever it is, it's a whole bunch of stuff that influences their training. And the way that we really tackle it is that, first of all, I think the key thing is to have a really good pre-season build-up. If you've had a very good pre-season, then you can... Rely on that pre-season to hold you over uh, with maintenance work on, on top of that throughout the season. So have a really good pre-season so it sets you up for a, a good in-season when you'll be training more on the water. And I assume that with windsurfing, you don't train on the water year-round. Mind you, in Australia, you might be able to do that Um not 100% sure on that, again, don't know enough about the sport, but a good pre-season or a good block of training um, off the water, so dry land training, would be crucial to get you set up for a good in-season. And then during the season, the the focus is always, or the priority is always put on your on-water training, because that's the most important thing. Same with all of our snow sport athletes, the training, their dry land training, or their uh, training down off the hill is really important, but it supports their key aspects of, of their of their job. So for you, on-water training is crucial, and I would always prioritize that over anything else, because that's what's going to make you a better windsurfer at the end of the day, is windsurfing. So if the wind's blowing, then take advantage of it, and then have a bit of a structure around your plan and what you want to achieve at different phases throughout the year, but most importantly, have that flexibility within the plan to bend and flex as required. So what we do with our snow sport athletes in terms of their strength and conditioning work, we have a couple of different options in the gym for them depending on the day, depending on the weather forecast. So if it looks like it's going to be a really terrible day and they're not going to be able to ski or snowboard the following day up on the mountain, then we'll take advantage of that and Hammer them in the gym, get the get the strength work into them that they need, knowing that the next day is going to be a recovery day because of the weather. Now, it's probably going to be the same with you. If you have the option of putting in a, a hard day of dry land training, then you'll probably have a good idea of what the next day is going to be in terms of a recovery day, whether it's not windy enough or too windy. I'm not too sure if you go out if it's too windy. But having those options set up is key, and then having another uh, session that is a little bit easier may work on some more accessory exercises. It's not going to leave you know those primary muscle groups of your of your lower body or your upper body too smashed, so you're not able to go out and do your
2: uh, windsurf training.
0: Nick, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me of some time I spent working with uh, the high performance rowing guys out of Dunedin uh, a few years back, and we were in a similar position when they would, you know, would have a, the best laid plan on paper and they'd turn up and they'd be absolutely shattered from an extra road that they'd snuck in because it was calm. Uh, and so having a, a really good sort of core uh, rehab, sort of prehab sort of program that you can jump onto when you're off the water, um, you're pretty shattered from the, uh, the session, but you want to be able to do something. Um, and sort of coupling that with a bit of metabolic conditioning work, whether it be jumping back with your old CrossFit coach and getting them to give you a few plans to, to work on, um, and then utilising the the off season, like Matty said, to, to work on a good base of strength to enable you to to transfer that into the following season.
0: Nice. Yeah, I think the key thing is having those options available to use them, you know, as as you can. And, and there's quite a lot of sports similar to that that are very weather affected you know rowing kayaking windsurfing all the ones that are on water especially um, that you've got to have options there and it's it's not a so much a a play it by air sort of thing it's just have the plan set up but then have the flexibility to be able to adapt and I think as long as you know what you're trying to achieve then those uh, adaptions can happen quite quite effectively now second part of that question uh, was about heart rate monitors and how to get the most out of them for windsurfing now no doubt you do love your heart rate monitor being an engineer engineers all love love their numbers Um, and the main thing i would suggest for you would be to use your heart rate monitor uh, to monitor training load to some extent so even though the heart rate's not directly related to windsurfing performance. What it will do though is it will give you an overall snapshot of how much training load you're experienced during the session. So when it comes to training stress score on the likes of uh, Training Peaks, it's a it's a it's a good indicator. It's not the be all and end all, but if you record every one of your training sessions, you've got the heart rate, gives you the time, gives you a TSS score. And then using the performance management chart, you'll start to notice patterns of when you're, uh, what are we talking about here? It's not snowboarding, we're talking about windsurfing. When you're windsurfing hard, you're going to be able to see your your training load going up. That acute training load will start to climb and your chronic training load will start to climb as well. And that'll give you an idea of when you need to balance your rest your rest and your, your training load when it's getting too high. Now, I've used this with uh, skiers as well, which I'd almost say that skiing has less uh, of an impact on heart rate or is less heart rate dependent uh, compared to windsurfing, but we were able to accurately track or at least get a very good picture of the on-snow training load of athletes just based off their heart rate and the duration of their training. So... If you're not using Training Peaks already, I'd suggest getting set up with Training Peaks so that you're not trying to manage all that data by yourself. The other options you could uh, set up on Strava—they have a sort of training uh, performance management chart on there as well. But get set up on a platform that's going to help manage your data, record it, upload it, and then start looking for patterns from there. The key thing is is that it's recorded and it's in the software because if you're missing sessions then the reliability of it becomes you know goes out the window completely and even though it's not going to be 100% accurate or it's not going to be you know the 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 gold standard for tracking training load in windsurfing I'm not sure that there's much better way to do it and if you start using the data look start looking for those patterns really focus on training load and recovery then that'll go a long, long way to um, helping you manage your training load. Nick, do you have anything else to add to uh, metrics that might be useful for windsurfing with a heart rate monitor?
2: Um, yeah, a metric that I'm really keen on and in the process still of working out the best mix with, I guess, different devices and training peaks itself is heart rate variability um, or HRV Uh, Now, heart heart rate variability is a you know probably a multiple podcast ongoing uh, sort of information by itself, Um, and we did cover a little bit of it uh, last year. But it's essentially a a tool that can measure measure your uh, recovery and your readiness to perform on a given day. So it's taking a measure of your heart rate uh, and the individual differences between the beats, um, and uses a calculation to work out how stressed or recovered you are. So it's very independent based on how you're recording that. Uh, Garmin have an option, Polar have an option, uh, there's a bunch of different apps that you can use as well. So it's probably easier, James, if you want to reach out and let us know what you're using uh, device wise and we can can give you some information or point you in the right direction uh, for how to best record it yourself. Um, and maybe maybe down the track Maddie we can put it on a Uh, a podcast and and really delve into heart rate variability and have a a good conversation about that.
0: I think, uh, just to clarify Nick, would that heart rate variability be used during the session or is that like a a recovery monitoring you're thinking of there? there?
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of it as a a first thing in the morning, a bit like people used to take a resting heart rate. Um, It can though be used during a session um, and some of the new Garmin uh, watches are coming out with the ability to record your session um, and heart rate variability within that session. Um, So I'm less familiar with that component of it and I'm thinking it's only the heart rate watches that have the heart rate on the wrist. Um, And I know Uh, there's still some some controversy there about how accurate that is. So I'm a big big believer using it first thing in the morning when you get out of bed to to measure your daily set point. Um, And then again, you can track that over time. So one day in the week isn't enough to, to know where you're at. Uh, but that number is relevant to your training across the course of a couple of weeks, and, and going from there.
0: Nice. So we're using it as a uh, uh, a metric to track recovery. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yep. off, daily off stress at
2: work um, it will affect your um, HRV just as much as a, yep. a training session. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Um, All right, James. I hope that helps answer your question. If it doesn't. Uh, send us through another question to add to or adjust or add sub-questions to that. Otherwise, uh, get out there. Train hard, but train smart. Nick, talk to us about, following on from last week's segment, hydration.
2: Cool. Well, hopefully you have had a chance to listen to last week's podcast. Um, if you haven't, you may want to hit pause on, on our lovely faces and go back to last week's and have a look, um, or a listen, um, because we looked at basically how to, how to measure your own sweat rate um, for a very simple sort of field test, um, but also the importance of why we need to know our sweat rate, uh, why sodium is such a big player in the electrolyte field, um, and a simple tool that you can use online to work out roughly how much sodium you might be losing. So I'd love to know some sweat rates from people that are out there because I jumped into one of my old textbooks um, which is titled The Essentials of Sport Nutrition and Supplements um, and they have a table basically covering light sweaters all the way up to heavy sweaters. So we're looking at ranges from 350ml per hour for a light sweater um, in pretty cold sort of 5 degree temperatures all the way through to over 2 litres an hour for a heavy sweater in 32 ish degree temperatures uh, based on some of the literature so as you can see there's a huge variance there Um, a obviously like i said last week temperature plays a huge role um, but also individual how hard you're pushing um, and how long you're pushing for so if you think about the likes of those heavy sweaters um, at sort of two liters an hour um, imagine if you had to try and drink two liters an hour while riding a race in the middle of the mountains so to speak or running an uh, Ironman, where you've got limited access to water um, at aid stations, you just can't physically do it. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the sort of gastric emptying rates are basically the m- amount of liquid that your stomach can process per hour is about an hour. Um, so if you're in that heavy sweating range, then you're physically not going to be able to replace all of your sweat loss every hour, um, which does sort of play into a really nice um, sort of hypothesis that The whole sort of crux of 4% being the the magical point of dehydration and pulling people from races and so forth um, is a bit of a myth. Um, And especially when you look into the elite sporting realm um, and in particular marathon runners, uh, the the top marathon runners are losing the most um, body weight per athlete on the course. Um, So they're sweating a lot more, they're really efficient at losing heat Um, and because they're only out there for, you know, two hours and change, it doesn't have a huge uh, detrimental effect on their performance. If you know someone's out there running six hours for a marathon and they're losing six percent of their body weight, yep, that's going to have have a pretty bad performance detriment um, to that person. So it's all relative to to, to individual performances, um, but it's also relative to time that you're out there. So if you're looking at doing a, a two hour sort of max um, sort of maximum time, being out there for two hours, running, biking, whatever it might be then your hydration isn't as important as a, a 6 hour, 10 hour, you know, multi-day type of event. So um, it's really entirely up to you guys to, to look at your sweat rates, how important is sweating in your individual performance. Um, and again, you know, someone like James who was on earlier, uh, I don't know how important hydration is for a windsurfer. I don't know how long the average race is, um, but potentially if he's outside in the sun and the wind all day competing, Uh, then hydration becomes a massive component to that Um, so it's not sort of uh, it's not immune there's no sports that are immune to hydration Um, one big thing that hopefully sort of came out of last week the importance of it i didn't really mention hydration plan as such but hopefully now that you're looking at your sweat rates and different temperatures and your potential sodium losses you can start to build a plan for your set goals and and races um, because you'd know roughly what's on at each aid station. Um, So the likes of my uh, contact depot that I've got coming up, I know there is limited actual aid stations themselves, but you go past um, a a truckload of rivers along the way. So there's gonna be plenty of access to water. So I don't have to worry so much about making sure I fill up at specific aid stations. I can grab water along the way, um, versus someone that might be going into a race where there's only one or two aid stations and you have to carry a lot more water if you're gonna be sweating a lot more. So all these little nuances that you can, can work through um, and that's where it can be quite good to put them down on paper, send them through to a, a coach like Maddie and myself and so we can have a wee look and give you some guidance around that. Um, one thing that's now starting to become quite uh, sort of popular in in sports science is the concept that I mentioned last week of sodium preloading. Now. Sodium preloading is simply a consumption of a a higher concentration of sodium the night before and then the morning of a key training session or race. Um, Now the issue with consuming high amounts of sodium is you get to a certain point and your body doesn't agree with it and it will make you vomit or go to the toilet. So it's a matter of trying to find a sweet spot and it tends to be in that realm of 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams of sodium. So we'll use 1,000 milligrams. Um, so you'd have a thousand milligrams the night before your race. Get up the next day, have a thousand milligrams in the morning, and then you'd start your race in hopefully what they would call a hypohydrated um, situation or environment. Um, now, hypohydration basically means you are uh, hot, you're overhydrated, but you're uh, not to the point of sort of diluting your, your electrolyte balance, so to speak. Um, there's actually some interesting research coming out of Otago, um, someone that's quite dear and close to Maddie's heart, uh, Mr. Jim Cotter, um, and his colleagues looked at the, uh, the the benefits of this hypohydration on performance in the heat, and so they were actually able to show that by hypohydrating yourself, you can increase your plasma volume enough to reduce the and. Um, The tolerance or increase your tolerance to heat um, in a race the next day Um, so some of those sort of things that are starting to appear now are quite interesting Um, and the the sort of what i would call the real world application to them is is huge especially in uh you know ultra marathons ironman triathlon and those sports where people are often not consuming enough uh, sodium or electrolytes throughout the race
0: B time. And that's interesting in itself in that like if you a lot of people think well why don't you just drink a bunch of water the day before and and, and hydrate but what ended up happening you just end up peeing it out obviously. So the sodium is really important for absorbing the water kind of hide the water away in your body where where the body can't find it almost because if you just drink a lot of drink a lot of water and it's in your in your bloodstream what happens is your, your kidneys know that it's there, and, and you've got too much fluid in your body, so it gets rid of it. But by consuming it with this large amount of sodium, what your body's able to do is hide it away in your cells so that your fluid regulators, your, your kidneys, don't actually know it's there. So it's pretty clever sort of thinking. Um, and so that you've got, you look kind of like a camel in that you're able to hold this water and sodium to be used later. It's, it's a cool concept.
2: That mm, is, and it's, I guess, the advantage of us doing this live together is, is Matty can chime in with his his really geeky answers, um, and that's something I've always admired about Mr. Graham.
0: Not at all, mate. How, how is being a camel
2: geeky? <laughs> well, I'd like you to ask any camel and see how they respond to that.
0: Well, although camels don't actually store fluid, do they? They store fat in their humps. True true so yeah that's... sorry about that's definitely not kicky at all
2: <laughs> anyway um moving along i guess to the application of this in, in the real world and like i said if you're under under two hour kind of mark in terms of a training event or uh race then i would say this isn't a huge um, issue for you unless that event is in a really hot condition so if it's going to be you know sort of more than 18 uh 20 degrees or you're a really heavy sweater um, then you really need to look at some some hydration or pre-loading strategies for that event. Anything over that two hour mark I would say uh, some sort of pre-loading is going to be beneficial. Um, again we're using in that realm of up to 1500 milligrams um, of sodium and now the key is to not add this to what you would normally drink. So it's common for again uh, Ironman Triathlon tends to hoard the biggest group of people that kind of used to you know the carbo loading and pasta parties and all those events prior to but there's no need to sit constantly on a bottle of water for three or four days beforehand going to the toilet five or six times um, one sort of 500 to a thousand milliliters of water it, for that 1500 milligrams of sodium is adequate um, same two in the morning you might want to use a little bit less in the morning so go on the 500 uh, 500 milliliters of water in the morning with the 1500 milligrams of sodium. That just assures that you're not super sort of heavy with water in the stomach, um, and it has time to adequately clear your gut. And again, too, like eating, you don't want to have that 15 minutes before your, your event. Give yourself a good hour, um, hour and a half to kind of absorb it and, and process it. Now, the hard part can be finding the products to use to get that high level of sodium without the taste becoming disgusting. Um, Now, last week I mentioned the company Precision Hydration, um, and they're still really one of the only groups that I can find that do these really high doses of sodium without a a super salty tasting drink. Um, By all means, if you want to add, you know, two or three um, sort of dissolvable tablets into your drink bottle of a a noon or um, an equivalent type of product, um, go for gold. You're going to get the same result. It's just going to have a very interesting taste to it. Um, If you're using a carbohydrate sort of based drink like a pure sports hydration um, just bear in mind that you are consuming carbohydrate with that and like I said last week I think to get 1500 milligrams of sodium you need about 6 or 7 serves of pure um, which is in the realm of 20-ish scoops out of the bags Um, so you're going to get a significant amount of carbohydrate with that and that's going to alter the absorption into your gut. So not having anything against pure hydration, but I would tend to stick to a sort of a electrolyte only product to get this high dose of sodium uh, because of that component. Pure, on the other hand, do make the capsules, which are very effective. Um, there are I think, around a 300 milligram sodium mark per capsule. So you can use um, five of them in the uh, day before and five of them the next day, just making sure you're still drinking, uh, you know, 500 to 1000 millilitres of water with that. Um, during the race, in terms of sort of replacing sodium, if you are hypohydrated to start with, the replacement strategies during the race sort of are lessened, so to speak. Um, the one thing it is certainly worth having a plan as to how often you want to be drinking uh, that will be dictated by again how often aid stations are, temperature of the race, duration of the race. Um, but it does seem to be from the research in, in sport that. If athletes are left to drink um, only based on thirst, they replace about 30 to 50% of what they need to be replacing. So thirst isn't a great mechanism during exercise. Um, day-to-day, it's fine. Um, in a race, I would suggest having some sort of strategy as to how much you're going to drink on a 15-minute um, sort of basis.
0: Nice. So key things with the um, the preloading, is don't have to keep sipping long-term, you can just, in the day before, was it?
2: Yeah, so the the night before, um, so I'd almost say maybe either just before dinner or just after dinner, um, have your, your 500 to 1,000 mils, so fill up a, a bottle of water, uh, most sports bottles are, you know, 600 to 700, so they work perfectly, um, bang in your 1,500 milligrams of sodium, um, and kind of drink it over the course of half an hour or so, um, you don't have to scull it all back at once um, but again you don't need to be sipping on water all day for three or four days prior
0: Nice, and it's not actually that, that much is it when you think about it anyone can sort of drink a drink bottle full while, you know, during during the evening
2: Yeah totally um, I mean most people will be drinking that volume mm. of water anyway um, and yep. it's just adding something to it is the the key um, not adding an extra bottle to what you were drinking
0: Yeah nice, no, so yeah the most important thing is getting that, that sodium in there isn't it
2: get it in the night before that's the most important time um, second most important time is prior to the event um, and then again depending on how much you're, you're losing during the race and how long that race is depends on how much you need to use during during the race itself um, and i'd love to hear from some people as to what products you're using for hydration during events um, i think i might have said it last week in new zealand we might be a little bit sheltered in terms of the access to some of these products Um, But if you've got a product that you want me to have a look at, that you want me to try, um, flick us the name, um, and if possible, flick me a place I can get it from. Um, And maybe over the course of the next couple of weeks, we can bring some products to the table from a hydration point of view, um, comment on taste, um, and potentially sort of the the breakdown of those products as well. For
0: sure. That sounds awesome, Nick. Brilliant. Okay, moving on from hydration. We've got a new segment uh, for today, and I'm not too sure how this segment is going to go, whether how it shapes the future of it, but it's the Harden Up Project. And this is something I've been thinking about for a while now. Um, And so here's a little bit of an introduction to the Harden Up Project. I don't know about you, but I'm getting soft. In fact, I think the human race as a whole is getting soft. You just have to look back, you know, 50 years ago, we're definitely softer than we were 50 years ago. And if you look back 100 years ago, I guarantee we are way softer than we want. So I think it's time we started hardening up again. Why, you may ask? Well, no matter who you are, I think being harder uh, makes you better. Even if you're the hardest person in the world being a little bit tougher, a little bit more mentally resilient than you currently are has to be a positive thing. Now a bit of a throwback here, I remember like vividly when I was young, I was walking back from a beach uh, with my nana and my cousins to my nana's house and I'm, I was about 8 and I must have been whining a lot more than usual um, because she turned around to me and she said harden up boy and My nana was a super tough old duck, she grew up on a farm, she worked physical jobs all her life right up until her dying days and she even worked as a care worker in her later life looking after people that were younger than her and I always thought that was pretty awesome but ever since my nana told me to harden up, I've actually had a lot of other people in my life tell me to harden up as well and I guess that's a combination of me being quite soft one, but then two, also growing up on the West Coast, where it's a pretty rugged environment on the West Coast of the South Island. But there's also some pretty rough and tough people there as well. Not in a physical aggressive way, but just as a, a, the mental resilience to, to live and to thrive in such an environment. Uh, and all of the industry on the West Coast uh, now and in the in the past has come from gold mining or forestry, all these kind of hard, hard industries. So harden up, two simple words that I think can, or that I've personally used a lot from time to time to get me through some pretty hard physical situations, but also mental situations, mentally challenging times. Being from an endurance background, the most obvious sort of challenging times that I've used... The, the phrase harden up to get through is, is physical times when you're hurting in a race uh, or a training session. Harden up makes you you know push a little bit harder, push through that pain, uh, dig a little deeper to, to be that little bit better. If you're having a tough day at work, like it's not that bad, harden up. If you know your kids are playing up or they're up in the middle of the night and you're not getting much sleep because you're having to to sort them out well come on harden up it's not it's honestly it's it's not that bad um what about if you don't get your morning coffee in the morning and you're a little bit grumpy it's kind of like come on harden up or feeling hangry like that's not actually a feeling it's not an emotion harden up and, and get over it so like you're a member of the human race Okay, you're a member of the most adaptable species on earth. Hell, you're a member of the species of the most adaptable, robust uh, species in the whole entire universe that we know of. Our ancestors, you know, fought woolly mammoths or they ran down antelope, like literally ran them down. It's called persistence hunting. You chase a bunch of uh, quadrupeds and they can't pant to cool themselves down. Humans, we can. We can, we can sweat. So we can run after things on two legs until they get tired and stop, and then we can kill and eat them. And that's how we, the human race, used to hunt things. We used to live in caves and huts, and we fought you know battles, and we still fight battles. We've survived famine, epidemic plague, and explored the extremes of the earth, whether that be to the Arctic or the Antarctic. We've suffered in concentration camps, uh, prisoner of war camps, we've survived desert islands, been lost at sea, in the jungle, in mountains, and the desert. So you quite literally have the same physical goods, the same DNA as some of the most robust and resilient people who have ever walked the earth. So just remember, you're a member of the human race. So start acting like it, harden up and start acting like it. But to be fair, it's not your fault that you're soft. All right, humans are programmed to be soft. We're programmed to conserve as much energy as possible. We are bloody good at making things easy for ourselves because that's a survival mechanism that is built into us. Humans will naturally sit down or squat given the option. That's why there's chairs and waiting rooms. And we invented modes of traveling easier. We created sleds to drag drag things. We got animals to do the work for us. It's gotten out of control though. We no longer even get out of our car to open the garage door. And while we're on that subject, when did walking become exercise? Walking is not exercise. Walking is just how we get around. Have you ever heard a snake say, I'm going to just go out for a slither right about now? No, snakes don't go out for slithers to get exercise, they just slither around. We used to hunt and gather our food and then we found an easier way to do it. We brought the animals to us and we put them in fences. We We built gardens so we didn't have to walk around and find bushes to pick things off. And then we came up with this great idea to build big buildings and put all the food inside it. So then we just have to walk around the building and grab the food that we wanted and put it in a trolley. Now, with a couple of clicks of your button, you can get your groceries delivered to your door. You don't even have to walk around the supermarket anymore. It's no wonder people find it hard to endure hardship because all the inconvenience of our life has been effectively removed. When I was younger, I used to read a lot of stories about explorers and survivors survival stories and soldiers who endured extreme situations and that put anything that I did to absolute shame so over the next few episodes what I want to do is share some of these stories with you now they're not my stories they're from people that have done actual things actual extreme things not me and I want also couple those stories with some physical homework So you can start developing that mental resilience and start to harden up. Now, it's not about being aggressive, violent, rude. It's about being mentally resilient and being better and a little bit harder. So to kickstart things for the Harden Up project, I want you to submit the hardest ever training session, race, or adventure in the comment section on whatever platform you're listening and just go down there write it in let us know what it is if you don't want to post it on the social media platform send us a message over on our email or on social media for each of these uh, submissions that we get I'm gonna send you out some of our new Harden Up stickers we've only got a limited number of them because we got some uh, proofs back from the the printer so get them in quickly because it'll be first in first serve once we run out of these stickers i'm sorry you'll have to wait until we get the next lot. then nick and i are going to read through all of these different uh stories of the hardest training session race or adventure you've had and we're going to choose a winner the one that we think is worthy of the winner of the hardest And for that winner, we're gonna send you out a little bit of a goodie bag with a few different things in it. So, to kick us off with the Harden Up project, Nick Taylor is gonna share with us his hardest ever training session, race, or adventure. Nick.
2: Well, that's put me on the spot to some extent. But probably the hardest thing I've ever attempted, um, and it is an attempt because I didn't finish the race, was an 100-mile run. Um, so 100 miles been 160 kilometers. Uh, it was a 10-kilometer loop, or 10-kilometer figure of eight, I should say. Um, so pretty much every five kilometers, you have the ability for someone to give you some drink, some food, some warm clothes, a chair to sit down on, and a car to, to, to get out of there basically. Um, I started off pretty good. Uh, I got through maybe, I don't know, 30 k's and it started raining. Um, I wasn't running very quickly and it's don't think it's a, an extreme mountain run or not. It wasn't at all. Um, and then from about, yeah, 30 k's onwards, it started raining at about 80 kilometers. I was feeling all right, thought I should change my clothes. Um, so I changed my clothes, it was dark at this stage, probably ooh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. Um, changed to some dry clothes, went back out there. In the first kilometres of going back out there I got wet again um, and life just sucked. I was went from being wet to being dry and I thought this is great, to back to being wet in about 20 minutes um, and life was crap. Um, and pulled through for another 5 kilometres, kind of uh, hummed and hard, finished up doing 105 kilometers, sat down, said, that's me, done, righty-rah. Uh, a bunch of people tried to get me to get back out there. And I was mentally, I was, nah, no, no way are you dragging me back out um, of this tent. Um, so here I am sitting in a tent, uh, you know, I've got, now I've got warm clothes on, I'm in a sleeping bag, I've had something to eat. I've got a gas fire going, so I've warmed up, but I'm still like, no, nah, that's, I'm not going back out there in that rain. So it does put into perspective some of those, um, situations um, that I have witnessed Maddie be in as well in his um, brevets and the, especially the Tour of Aotearoa um, where it rained quite a lot on that for him as well. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's something I said to Maddie a while about, back about experiences all being relevant. So for me at that stage that was probably the hardest thing I've ever attempted um, from a physical point of view um, being through other mental challenges in life. But from a physical point of view, that for me was the hardest. But when you compare it to something Maddie's done, it's not that hard. And then when you compare something Maddie's done to um, a soldier going to battle, it's not that hard. So it's a really nice, um, I guess, perspective grabbing segment that we're going to be opening up. Um, and I'm absolutely rapt to be hearing some of your stories coming through as to some of the, the things that we put ourselves through as humans. These days, compared to what our, our forefathers did, I guess, back in the day.
0: Nice. And I think that's one of the draws of uh, endurance sport for people is that that suffering, that little bit of, you know, hard cornice that, um, that you, you sort of go and look for. Well, I, I, I personally do. And uh, one of the things I love about doing like a brevet is getting to the finish and at the finish, it's just like this amazing feeling of uh, relief. Uh, and your bed's never felt so comfortable when you've slept on the ground for a few nights. Uh, or you've, you have you don't value, you know, that you're able to go to a tap and turn it on. Uh, and, and, you know, beautiful, clean, cold water comes out of it. Or hot water comes out of a tap. And so what I want to do over this next... Um, these next few weeks and explore some of these these stories is to help you set a new normal. Because as Nick said, it's all relative. So what you've experienced in the past affects how you experience things in the future. So if you think something's really hard because this is the wettest I've ever been, it's the coldest I've ever been, it's the windiest it's ever been, uh, and I'm so exhausted, then... It's true, that is the the hardest thing you may have ever done, but you've got so much more in you, and we're going to have a look at uh, some stories of people that have gone above and beyond in terms of their endurance uh, and their strength and, and everything, and we're also going to look at some of the science behind it as well to show to you that oh, it's not only that we're, you know, we're saying this things, and It's kind of like nice, warm, fuzzy thing saying, yeah, you've got more to give. But the science actually shows it as well, that you're not tapping in to your full potential. And you need to harden up and start digging a little deeper because you're holding so much back. So that's the Harden Up Project. If you can send through your hardest ever situation you've been into, Send those through. We're going to send you out some stickers so that you can get on the Harden Up project path. And we're going to keep working towards that. If you want to get yourself a Harden Up t-shirt, you can do that. I'm wearing one right now. This is the coolest t-shirt I've ever owned, to be honest with you. Uh, And one, it's super comfortable. um, But that's beside the point. But when I'm wearing it, it's next level. Like I was wearing it in the gym earlier uh, in the week. Or last week, sorry. And every time I looked in the mirror, it was a reminder to harden up. Every time you walk past a window and you, and you see a reflection of yourself, it's a reminder to harden up. And it's not telling other people to harden up. right? You're not walking around with harden up on your t-shirt saying that, You know, oh, this is about me and you're soft and you need to harden up. This is about you telling yourself that you're soft and that you need to harden up. And even if you're already hard, you can always be just a little bit harder. So jump over and check those out if you want to get yourself a t-shirt. At least go and check them out. There's some other ones over there as well at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash store. Um, and we've got some other t-shirts over there that are pretty cool. Anyway, um, if you want to get any of the resources that we mentioned on today's episode, get over and check them out over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 52 for episode 52. Make sure you don't miss out on any of the upcoming podcast episodes or video by subscribing to YouTube. There are lots of videos up over there, or come over to the Exponential Performance Coaching Facebook page or you can find us over on Instagram to continue the conversation. I'm at Matty, M-A-T-T-Y-E-P-C and Nick is at its underscore a underscore Nick's underscore life. Nick, we're going to have to change that one, bro. I don't make it easy. At least you remember it, though. You don't make it easy. That's all right. We'll just harden up and remember it. Exactly. Until next time, get out there and train hard, but most importantly, train smart. We'll talk to you later.